Well, um, one of my favorite memories from high school actually is nothing I learned in the classroom, but it was one of my good friend's t-shirts. Uh, and so I'd memorize this t-shirt that he wore because he wore it usually once a week. And on the back, it had Albert Einstein wearing a red Hawaiian shirt. And that was a very memorable thing, but it, it dealt with Einstein's theory of relativity. So on the back of the shirt, it said, if you sit on a hot stove for a minute, it feels like an hour. But if you sit with a pretty girl for an hour, it feels like a minute. That's the theory of relativity. And so I love that. I thought that was so helpful. But we've all experienced something like that in life. Whenever we're doing something fun, something enjoyable, something that we love, it seems to go by very quickly. But when in the midst of difficulty and hardship and sickness and depression, it seems to take so long. It seems like it will never end. And so that's a little bit of what we see David dealing with here in these chapters. And so I've entitled this message, How Long? Because we're going to start off in chapter 13, where David is going to ask, how long? How long do I have to keep suffering for these? How long is this going to go on? And, and for us and kind of things that we've suffered in our life in the past, the things that we're going through in the last few years, we may ask, how long? How long is it going to be? This is a common question for believers throughout time. And, uh, you know, we're going, to, we're going to talk about that, but also stay tuned because I'm going to close with a New Testament chapter um, in my conclusion, and we're going to get an answer to that how long. So you're going to have to wait for the end to get the final payoff. So Psalm 13, I'm going to go ahead and read through it, and then we'll take it verse by verse. So we read, To the chief musician, a psalm of David, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart daily? How long will my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and hear me, O Lord, my God. Enlighten my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death, lest my enemies say I have prevailed against him. Lest those who trouble me rejoice when I am moved. But I have trusted in your mercy. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. And so we see this is a kind of a common theme in the Psalms of starting off with some sort of difficulty, working through that, crying out to the Lord. By the end of the Psalm, the psalmist getting his eyes back on the Lord, focus on the Lord and being encouraged. And so what, what we want to start with in verses one and two here is really this is how David feels. This is what David is thinking, feeling. These are his motions. But we want to remind ourselves continually that feelings do not equal reality. Feelings do not equal reality. And this is hard for us because we live in a society that values feelings above all else. How do you feel about a thing? Whatever you feel about a thing becomes your reality. That's my truth. That, that's my authenticity. It's just not true. How we feel about things does not equal reality. So I'll read those two verses again. He says, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? So let's address these, these questions because there's really four, um, four questions here that David asks. And so the first one he asks is, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? And so this idea of forgetting in the Bible, we have to understand, doesn't speak of God kind of like, uh, you know, forgetting in the way that we forget, right? We forget things and um, it's like, it's, it's gone from our mind. That's not what David's talking about. God can't forget anything, okay? God can't learn anything because <laughs> God is omniscient. He has all knowledge. So to forget in the Bible means to fail to act on someone's behalf, all right? 
So if you remember way back and, you know, when Noah was in the flood, it says that God remembered Noah. And that word remembered there means that God acted on Noah's behalf. God intervened for Noah. So when David says, how long will you forget me? He's basically saying, how long are you going to leave me out here without doing something? How long are you going to do this? And and so as we look at this, as we kind of think about this, I think if we're honest, we've all felt like this. You know, how long will you forget me, Lord? How long are you going to, it's going to take till you act on my half, till you change these things? And what we want to kind of the answer, I would say, uh, for, for verse one here, how long will you, oh Lord, will you forget me forever, is Romans 8, 28. That's the answer. Now, these answers or these responses I'm giving before I go into 8 to 28 is, is simply this. I am giving you tools, not cures. All right? So the, the Bible scriptures are not cures. And what I mean by that is I'm having a difficult situation. Let me take Romans 8, 28 and call the doctor in the morning. No, 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 it's not a cure. It's a tool. You see, when you have some sort of vehicle, you, have, you can have tools to work on that vehicle. But when you work on that vehicle with those tools, it doesn't mean that vehicle is going to go well forever. There's going to be a time in the future where you have to work on it again. And so it is for us. We can't simply take a verse and say, oh, I'm fixed now. No, it's, it's a tool to help us to work through these challenges. And so Romans 8.28 tells us this truth. It says, you know, that we know that all things work together for the good, for those who love God, for those who are the called according to his purpose. That is the truth. That is fact. That is reality, no matter how we feel about it, no matter what the situations look like. And so when we feel ourselves, and we will feel like this, the Lord's forgetting us, he's not acting on our behalf, we know that though it may feel like that, it's not true. It's not true. There's never been a moment for you as a believer that God hasn't been working on your behalf. No matter how you felt about it, no matter how I felt about it, no matter how we've moaned and complained and all of those things, Romans 8, 28 has been true. Behind the scenes, God's been working all those things together for the good. And so he, he, can, he can take our complaints and he can take our raging and he can take all these things because he's bigger than we are and he knows that he's working those things behind the scenes. If you've ever had children, you know the same thing. You know that you're working for their good, you're wanting their best, but they rage against you often. They don't like the things that you're doing. They don't understand why you're making the choices you make, but you can take that because you know behind the scenes, I love you and I'm doing your best. I'm doing the best for you. That's what God's doing here, okay? So please understand as David is asking these questions, he's depressed, he's upset, he's frustrated, but he feels this way, but it doesn't mean that what he's saying is true. Because next, notice what he says. How long will you hide your face from me? So David is basically saying, God's playing this massive game of hide and seek. He's like, I can't see you, Lord. You're hiding your face from me. You're purposely restraining your presence from me. Now, that's not true for the believer. The, the, the fact is that we're going to feel at times like he's hiding his face from us, but that's not the reality. And, and so what we need to do here is to say, well, how do I respond to, I feel like God's hiding his face from me. Let me give you this. Let me give you this tool. If you can't see the Lord in your circumstances, find him in the scriptures. If you can't find the Lord in your circumstances, find him in the scriptures because he's always there to be found in the scriptures. His presence is always there in the scriptures. And so it's kind of like if we were in this, you know, this, this bleak inner office with no windows and we just complain because we can't see the sun. I just can't see the sun. I just want to see the sun. I want to see the sun. We'll go outside. 
And so I would encourage you and me, get outside of your circumstances. Get outside of your situation. And how do we do that? We go to the scriptures. The scriptures are a window to Almighty God. We read through it and we begin to see him. Now, the next how long, notice he says, how long shall I take counsel in my soul? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart daily? Now, this is a problem, but this is a problem that many introspective people wrestle with. You know, situations, circumstances are not looking good. So what's happens to the person? They turn inward and they become their own counselor. And they begin to kind of work through this. And kind of in the original Hebrew, I don't really want to kind of take all of it out, but it's this idea of kind of like making plan after plan in your head. And if I just make this plan, if I say this thing, and if I do this thing, then this thing will work out. But then that doesn't work out. And so like, well, plan B. And so you've, you've seen it all in the movies where a person is trying to make a decision or they're trying to write a book and they're kind of writing down the piece of paper and then they crumble it up and throw it on the ground, write on the piece of paper, crumble it, throw it on the ground. That's what David's doing mentally just over and over in his head. But the problem is the answers are not found within. No matter what best-selling self-help book there is, you can't find help in the self. Help is not found within ourselves. So what happens is instead of making plan after plan of how to deal with the situation, the tool is turn outward. Instead of being obsessed with the inward and what you think and what I think and how we're feeling and kind of all these things, what we need to do is turn outward. And the, the way we do this is, first of all, we seek the Lord in prayer. Give, the scripture says, cast your cares upon him because he cares for you. Paul writes, be anxious for nothing, but in all things with prayer and thanksgiving, make your requests known to God. And the peace that surpasses understanding will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. So we need to turn to him. We need to go outward. And so then also, as we go outward in prayer, then we also need to seek the counsel of others. We need to seek the counsel of other believers, wise believers, and ask their help and say, I'm dealing with this and this is what I'm thinking about. Can you help me? Can you give me counsel? Can you, can you give me some direction? And, and then also, and this is perhaps the hardest part, we seek the Lord in prayer. We seek the counsel of others we give up the conclusion to the Lord. This is, I think, the hardest part. We want to give things over to the Lord. We want counsel from others so we can arrive at the conclusion that we want. So we can arrive at the ending that we want. But the hard thing is, we are not the author of the story. We're not even, let's be honest, we're not even the main character. (laughs) We are bit players in God's story. Now, it's interesting because of God and his graciousness, he loves us so much, even though we're a bit player. He, he loves us and wants us to have a relationship with him in it forever. But, you know, he is the author of the story. His son is the main character. And so for us, just saying, well, the Lord's writing the story. And if you're anything like me, you trust. I can trust that C.S. Lewis can write a story with a good ending. I trust that Tolkien can write a story with a good ending. I, write, I trust that Charles Dickens can write a story with a good ending. Do I believe that God Almighty can write a story with a good ending? Do I believe that God Almighty, no matter how the story looks, no matter how dark this chapter is, he can bring it around in the end? Do I believe that? And, and so whether we believe it or not, the, the spoiler is it's true. He is going to bring it to a good ending. That's a promise he's made. 
And so we leave that conclusion to him. And then all of a sudden, I don't have to play God in my own life. It doesn't have to be about me figuring out, me making the right decisions to make sure the conclusion is where I want it to be. Now I'll give it over to the Lord and he can conclude it how he wants. Now, this final how long in verse two says, how long will my enemy be exalted over me? You know, how long am I going to be put under? How long are these, you know, the, the ungodly going to be reigning over me? What, what's going to happen? How can, you know, and there's, there's a lot of it. Let me give you a couple of tools for this question. Because to be honest with you, you and I in this life, we're probably never going to attain to great political power. Probably never going to attain to great financial power. Probably not going to attain to great influence in society. And so in some sense... You know, these enemies of Christ are going to be over us. They're going to be exalted over us. So how do we deal with that? Well, there's a couple of verses, a couple of tools for us. First one is John 16, 33. I mentioned it recently. This is what Jesus said. These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. So the fact is that you and I, as believers, are in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ has overcome the world. So there is a sense right now when the enemy is not exalted over us. Because Christ is seated in heavenly places. And spiritually speaking, you and I are seated in heavenly places with him. Our citizenship is in heaven. And so that needs to be a tool in our toolbox that we say, I'm in Christ. Though things look bleak right now, I'm seated with him. He's overcome the world. So I need to have peace in that, realizing even though right now there's going to be tribulation. And then the second one, the second tool for you is Revelation 21, verse 4. Revelation 21, verse 4. I'll give you the context. It's the new heaven, the new earth. Okay, we've had the tribulation period. We've had the millennial kingdom. We've had the great white throne judgment. And so now it's a new heaven and new earth. And this is what we read about this new heaven and new earth. Revelation 21 verse four. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain for the former things have passed away. So how long will my enemy be exalted over me? I'll say this, not forever. (laughs) Not forever. Any difficulty, hardship, you know, that we suffer is temporary. For the believer, it's temporary. And so the application is, as we kind of think about these things, and we think about all these how longs from verses one and two, the thing that's very easy for us to, to pray and to cry out to the Lord is simply this. Do we pray for God to change our circumstances or do we pray for God to change us? That's, that's a hard one. Because it's always easier to pray for God to change our circumstances. Get me out of this trouble. Get me out of this difficulty. And I kind of kind of lighten it up for just a moment. Maybe back when you were in school, you didn't study for the test. So you prayed, God, would you somehow help me to pass this test? Will you somehow drop the periodic table into my mind right now so I can pass this chemistry test? And so we pray for that. But then you know what you could also do is, is pray, Lord, would you help me to be a better studier? <laughs> would you help me to do my work on time? Would you help me to do those things? So oftentimes God brings difficult circumstances in our lives because he really wants to change us. He's using those things to change us. So there are circumstances that we want God to change. And let's pray for that. Absolutely. But at the heart level, are we saying, Lord, in the midst of this circumstances, for however you, long you leave it here, will you change me? Will you change me? Because I have found in my own life, and I don't know where, where you are with the Lord at this, I have found that so often in my circumstances, I'm actually the villain. 
And I don't say that by hyperbole. I find in circumstances, I'm irritated with people, I'm frustrated with situations, and I find out because it's my attitude. It's my entitlement. I find myself to be the villain in the story. And that's okay because Jesus is the hero. But so often we view ourselves as the hero of the story, not the villain. And so we're upset. Why is all these things happening to me? And, and so to, to look and see, Lord, I, I need change. In the midst of these circumstances, in the midst of difficult, will you change me? So again, pray for both types of change. You know, pray for change in circumstances, but also pray for personal change because God desires to change us. And again, those difficult circumstances seem to be his favorite tools. All right, let's move on to verses three and four now. David says, consider and hear me, O Lord, my God. Enlighten my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death, lest my enemies say I have prevailed against him. Lest those who trouble me rejoice when I am moved. Now, I want to first consider, think about these words David's using here, consider and hear and enlighten. So consider means to look upon, to regard, right? So he's saying to God, look upon me, you know, regard me, pay attention to me. And he says, hear me. That word hear really means answer me, respond to me. And then enlighten means to illuminate, help me to see things clearly. So David is asking, and notice what David is asking for. David is asking for this relationship with God where God hears him and God responds. David sees and hears God's response. So it's always a relationship, right? That, that, that God is, is never, you know, let's kind of put it in a different way. Many of us have a sort of relationship with Amazon, Right? We find something around the house that we need. We know that they can get it there quickly, no matter what we th think about them politically or anything else. We know, okay, it's a means to an end. I, I need something. I'm going to order it. A couple of days, it'll be here. And sometimes, though, we can slip into that relationship with the Lord. The Lord's like our, our heavenly Amazon. We don't think about him until there's trouble. We don't think about them until there's difficulty. We don't think about them until things don't go the way we want them to do. And so we're like, all right, all right, now, now I need to order this thing. I need you to get it to me in a couple of days. But what David is showing here is that we're to have a relationship with him beyond that. It's a relationship that's, that's constant, that's continual, that, that God's goal for you and me is actually a moment-by-moment moment walking with him, a moment-by-moment moment walking in the spirit with him. And so David here is asking for God to intervene on his behalf, to provide him with, provide him with help and difficulty. He's upset because of his enemies. He's, he's troubled because they're prevailing against him. You know, he, he's, there's all of this turmoil. And so as I look at this, as I say, well, what's a tool for you and a tool for me? And I think we find it in Hebrews chapter 4. So would you turn to Hebrews chapter 4 for just a moment? Hebrews chapter 4. I want to look at verses 14 through 16. Now, if, it, if it's been a while since you've been in the book of Hebrews, I would encourage you to take some time. You know, it doesn't take too long to, to just work your way through it or maybe even, you know, one chapter a day, whatever the case may be, nothing legalistic. But, but I would encourage you from this standpoint, read the book of Hebrews and see all the promises that are found there. Read the book of Hebrews and see all the good news that's given because I want to remind you that this book was written to Jews who had become believers in Jesus Christ and as a result were suffering persecution, suffering difficulty. And then these individuals, in the midst of their difficulty, they were tempted to leave Jesus, to go away, to kind of go back to the old life. Things are getting too hard. Uh, it's, it, the, 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 the trail is getting a little steep. Let's go back. 
And so the writer to the Hebrews is showing us in this book how Jesus is greater than everything. Jesus is greater than Moses and angels and Aaron and the priesthood and the law and everything else. And that the great promises that are found there. So I want you to see in the midst of difficulties, hardship, looking for God, Hebrews 4 verses 14 through 16. Notice what we see. It says, seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Okay, so right now, no matter what we're enduring, no matter what difficulty we're having, no matter the state of affairs, the stock market, you know, you know, whatever's going on, no matter what's going on right now, Jesus is in heaven. Jesus is in heaven right now, and he's our high priest, and he has passed through the heavens. He's seated there at the right hand of the Father. And so for you and I, what, what the writer of the Hebrews is saying is, Hold fast your confession. In other words, hold on to your testimony. Hold on to your belief in Jesus Christ because nothing has changed. He said, though difficulty is, is, is assaulting you, this hasn't changed. Jesus is still sitting there. And then he says in verse 15, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. So, in other words, Jesus is not some person seated in heaven who can't understand us, who doesn't know what it's like to be human. He knows what it's like to be human. He knows what it's like to be tempted, and he knows what it's like to be tempted a lot more than you and I are because we usually give in to temptation after a, few, after a little while. He doesn't give in to temptation. He was tempted to the uttermost yet without sin. And so because of that, Jesus doesn't look down on us because we're so low and dirty and he's so high and exalted. He says, no, I've been where you are. I understand the difficulty of your situation. So come to me. I want to help you. I love you. I want you to draw near. And so with our weakness, he can sympathize with it. And so in light of all of this, I've kind of given away the ending there in verse 16. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now, this boldly here doesn't mean arrogantly. Okay, here's the imagery. Imagine there's this child and his dad is a federal judge. His dad is a federal judge, and at that, their home, they have this, you know, wood-lined office, leather chairs, books on the wall, and that father, that federal judge, is having an important meeting with individuals there in his home, and the little boy comes boldly into that office in the middle of that meeting because he needs to talk to his dad. He doesn't come in arrogantly. He doesn't come in like, oh, well, you know, you know who I am? No, he comes in boldly because he has a relationship with that father who loves him. As important as that father is, he makes time for that son. And that's what it's saying here. That because Jesus loves us, because he knows what it's like to be like us, because he knows how weak and fallen we are, he knows that we were gonna be like this, this day, today. He knows what we were gonna be like today and yet he died on that cross for us all those years ago. So in light of all that, the tool for you and I is we can come boldly to that throne of grace to find what? To obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We find mercy and grace there. Now, you know what? Sometimes we may not like it, but that mercy and grace may be the ability to endure the circumstance that doesn't change. The ability to, to endure the circumstance that gets worse. 
the, to, the ability to go through that thing because Jesus, you know, has that power to take you through. So Hebrews 4 verses 14 through 16 are incredible tool, incredible truth to help us to get through these things. Because you know any great story, those characters in the story, they're going to have to encounter difficulty. They're going to have to encounter hardship. They're going to have to encounter these things to develop into who the author wants them to be. And that's what the Lord is going to do with us as well. Even though we may not like it in the moment, I can guarantee you this, we're going to like the end results. You and I may not like the character building in the moment, but when we go stand before the Lord, we're going to be very thankful for who he made us. All right, let's turn back to Psalm 13, continuing on in verse 5. Psalm 13, verse 5. Okay, we read, But I have trusted in your mercy. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. Now, I love this but I here because so often in the scriptures you see something going on and it says but God, right? And I love that. I love that whenever we find that, you know, all these things were against so-and-so, but God. Or this is what, you know, somebody said about Joseph, but God. But, but I love this. This is kind of the, the human side of things, right? This is David making in the, in the midst of his circumstances, difficulties, hardships, tribulation, making a choice. I'm going to trust in the Lord. And what does this say to you and I? It tells us that you and I as believers can make choices. We're not victims. We are not pool balls on the pool table of life. We're just there and the sticks of circumstance just keep knocking us around. That's not true. You and I have a choice. And so you and I can say today in the midst of all that's going on, I'm going to trust in the Lord. I'm going to choose to trust in the Lord. You and I have that provision. And so, but I love this. He says, I have trusted in what? In your mercy. David has placed his faith in God's mercy. That Hebrew word is God's loving kindness, his covenant love. And so you and I don't look at our circumstances and view our circumstances as this is how God must feel about me. Instead, say, in the midst of my circumstances, I'm going to trust in God's covenant love. I'm going to trust in God's mercy. And it's interesting, as you look in the New Testament, Paul makes it clear in Romans chapter 5 how we can know that God loves us. He says, but God demonstrates his own love toward us, and while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So that's an unchangeable fact. If you want to know today if God loves you, then go back to the cross. Look at the cross. That's God's visual aid for all time. When, when we look and say, does God the Father love me? Then ask yourself, did Jesus... Christ died on the cross, yes. Well, if Jesus Christ died on the cross, then I know that God loves me, no matter what else is going on. And so there's a reminder here as we look at verse five, as we consider it, that no matter how we plan and plot and scheme, circumstances will change. You can't, you can't make it static. We can't make it just how we want it to be. And many of those changes will make life more difficult. So, so consider all that. It's unwise to trust in circumstances. Instead, we must train ourselves. We must make that choice to trust in God's loving kindness. I will not trust in circumstances. I'll trust in God's loving kindness. Now, that may be something, a mantra that we have to say over and over again, because we have to train ourselves toward that. And so I love this too at the, uh, there at the end of verse five. Notice, my heart shall rejoice in your salvation. So as he trains himself 
to trust in God's mercy, God's covenant love, God's loving kindness, then what happens? Then his heart rejoices in his salvation. Our hearts will follow our choices. If we make a choice to, I'm going to make a choice to trust in God's loving kindness, then the heart will follow and begin to rejoice in God's salvation. It's a beautiful thing. Now that salvation, it could be, uh, means deliverance, right? We think about it in terms of like salvation from hell and to heaven. And that's absolutely true. But it's also speaking of deliverance. So in the midst of every difficulty, hardship, tribulation, there's gonna be a deliverance. Now that deliverance may come through death. It may, but there is gonna be ultimately a deliverance. Deliverance is coming. Verse six, he says, I will sing to the Lord. Again, a choice. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. This is another I will of David. And we've encountered this in the Psalms before where David makes a choice to do things. And so he's making a choice to sing to the Lord. I love that. So again, I've talked about it in another place. Worshiping God through song, I think is a very important thing. Um, but then in the midst of difficulty, why should we sing? You know, well, God needs to fix my circumstances and then I'll start singing. But why should we sing in the midst of difficulty? Why should we sing when it's dark? Why should we be like Paul? You know, I think it was it Paul and Silas when they were singing there in the Philippian jail. Why should we? Well, because we have the answer right here at the end of verse six, because he has dealt bountifully with me. That's why we should sing. Because we know that he's dealt bountifully. So there's a couple ways to, to interpret this. One is to consider how God's dealt bountifully with you in the past, right? Is to take a moment and to actually look and kind of consider your life as a believer and all that he's done. And what I, what, what the Lord's, uh, take credit for this, this is what the Lord's done in my heart. He's, he's allowed me to start seeing how he's dealt bountifully with me when I, before I was a believer. How he was, but when I was an unbeliever, how he was restraining certain things, how he was orienting certain things, how he was kind of put planting the seeds along the way. I've really come to believe that my entire life, believer and unbeliever, God was orienting things. God was directing things. And so God has dealt bountifully with me. And so we need to remind ourselves, well, how has he done it? What's the bountiful provision up to this point? And then there's another application for the end of verse six. And it's, it's, it's kind of how it could be translated in the Hebrew. It could be translated this. He is sure to deal bountifully with me. So, so David could sing to the Lord because also David knew God's going to be with me in the future. God's going to deal bountifully with me in the future. And again, that's the promise we have. The promise we have is that he's working all things together for the good, that there is going to be a good ending. Now, Satan is a bully and Satan wants to cause us to doubt. Satan has made it his life's goal to seek to sully and destroy God's plan. And so if Satan can get us as believers to think that everything's going to turn out poorly, it's not going to go well, and to kind of spread that discouragement to others, well, then he's really done well. So for you and I, it's to trust the truth that God is going to deal, has dealt bountifully with us in the past, and he will deal bountifully with us in the future. All right, let's move on to Psalm 14 now. It says, to the chief musician, a Psalm of David, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there are any who understand who seek God. They have all turned aside and they have together become corrupt. And there is none who does good, no, not one. Have all the workers of iniquity no knowledge? 
who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call on the Lord. There they are in great fear, for God is with the generation of the righteous. You shame the counsel of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord brings back the captivity of his people, let Jacob rejoice and Israel be glad. Now, verse one here, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God, they're corrupt, they've done abominable works, there is none who does good. Okay, so this word fool here, you know, we can use fool in a variety of different ways, right? You're out on the highway and someone's driving erratically, you're like, what is this fool doing? Right, that's, that's kind of a common response. Now, fool, biblically, often speaks of a person who's lacking understanding in moral or spiritual matters. Okay, that's really what it speaks of. Uh, the fool is the one who doesn't pay attention to moral or spiritual things, who doesn't really care about those things. Uh, and so it also can be defined as someone, you know, the fool is someone who has insolence or pride or disobedience to God. So the fool that we're talking about here in, in Psalm, uh, Psalm 14, verse 1, is the atheist. Now, he may be kind of the materialistic atheist like we think about today, or he may be the practical atheist, Right? The one who acknowledges, well, there may be some God, but he doesn't consider it. So when he says there is no God in the sense of there is no God who matters, there is no God who's interacting in this world, there is no God who I have to give account to, not any of those things. And so this, this atheist is a moral fool. This person who rejects God is a moral fool and his pride will be his downfall. And this is just how it was for Satan. Satan's downfall was his pride, his failure to acknowledge God for who he was. And so this is what we have here. Now, a refusal to believe in God is a, den is a denial of the foundational truth of reality. It all starts with that. It, it says, you know, the, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You know, and, and so that's where it has to start. And so a person who refuses God will inevitably lead to corruption and abominable works. That's inevitable. Now, we can all, and I've, I've heard these debates oftentimes, and I've debated with people, and, and people always want to debate about, well, there are atheists who do good things, right? There are atheists who take care of the environment, and there's atheists who take care of elderly parents, and all, and that's fine, right? Because we're all made in the image of God, right? Even the atheists made in the image of God, and so there's something of that image left where a person does things. But the idea here is they don't do any ultimate good, because if you do some good works on your way to hell, it's pointless. It's a pointless endeavor. And they're not in line with what God is doing. And so kind of as we think about this topic of Psalm 14, verse 1, because uh, Paul alludes to these sort of things in Romans, would you turn to Romans chapter 1 for just a moment? Because I want to talk about the root of this and kind of where it leads. And as we turn to Romans chapter 1, Paul is making an argument in the book of Romans that all people are under sin. Okay, and so Romans chapter 1, he talks about the fact that, that a fallen man is under sin and then kind of where this all leads. So Romans 1, I want to pick up the story in verse 16. Okay, and what we're going to see here in this section of Scripture, and I just want to remind you of this, is that a man or a woman, a person who rejects God, inevitably, without fail, okay, will lead to ungodliness. Okay, because it'll lead to a promotion of ungodliness this is what we see. Starting in verse 16, notice what Paul writes. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. I just want to remind you of that verse because sometimes we get so freaked out about sharing our faith with others and all those things. And we think, well, I'm the power of salvation. 
my argument is a power of salvation or my apologetics is a power of salvation or my persuasion or my tone of voice. No, 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 no. You and I are not the power of God to salvation. The gospel is, okay? So share the gospel, see what happens. Then it says, for the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, the just shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness because what may be known of God is manifest in them for God has shown it to them. Okay, so Psalm 14, one, the fool who says there is no God, Paul is telling us that that person is suppressing the truth of God. They're pushing the truth down. They know that there is a God, but they suppress that truth. It says this, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made by corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Okay, so they suppress the truth. And notice the, the argument Paul is making is creation makes it clear that there's a creator. He's just saying that. Creation makes it clear that there's a creator. So whenever a person says, nope, it all came from nothing, Paul says, you're suppressing the truth. And it says it leads to being unthankful to God because you don't even believe he exists. And so then what we see in verse 23, inevitably man has to worship something. So he becomes an idolater, makes little statues and prays to them or, you know, makes it the cause of like, well, I've got to save the animals and that's kind of going to be my goal in life. Or I'm going to worship the form of a fellow human being. That's the key to life. And it's just all this idolatry that comes from a suppression of the truth of God. Therefore, what happens to these people when they continue down that road, God gives them over. Notice, therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness, the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions for even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, also the men leaving the natural use of the woman who burned their lust for one another. Men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error, which was due. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil mindedness. They're whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud boasters. Inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. This is a radical chapter, but it's a good reminder for us because we can be deceived by the sophistry of Satan and think, well, like, well, the person who's an unbliever, well, they're really not that bad and, and maybe it's okay. No, no, this is the inevitable end in the heart and mind of a person who suppresses the truth of God. This is the reality. If a person is allowed to, to God allows them to live long enough, they're going to continue on down that path. So this is important for us to understand that when it comes to it, the rejection of God leads to every other evil. But a person, what, what's the answer? If a person's way down this road, just turn and repent. 
Turn to Christ, and Christ will welcome you into his family. All right, back to Psalm 14, and we'll move on to verses 2 and 3 now. David continues. Verses 2 and 3 says, The Lord looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek God. They have all turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is none who does good. No, not one. And so the, the atheist, whether they're material atheists, they're practical atheists, and all of mankind, though, is included here, they're all corrupt. Now, that word corrupt there you see in verse 3, it actually is used of spoiled milk. So it's this idea of, of just of something that's spoiled, something that's not fit for what it was made for. And, and so really the big thing I would take from verses 2 and 3 is that fallen man in his natural state, he's in need of rescue. Can't fix it, Okay. There's this idea, and it's, it's all through the history of man, that we can fix it. Tower of Babel, right? We can put it together. We can build it. We can do it. If only enough of us, and if only we have enough technology and enough ideas and enough put our heads together, we can fix it. Scripture says you can't fix it. You can't fix it. You need rescue from outside. Mankind is uh, in its fallenness, is just floating there in the Pacific Ocean, waiting to either drown or be attacked by sharks, in need of rescue. And so God says, I'm willing to rescue you, but you have to come to me. And so in their natural state, every person is a fallen sinner, but the good news is the Lord Jesus came to rescue fallen sinners. And so every person is a fallen sinner. Every person is corrupt on their own, but Jesus came to rescue the corrupt. Jesus came to adopt, to renew, to, to make them born again, those who were lost. Verse four, have all the workers of iniquity no knowledge who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call on the Lord? And so this is David's kind of outcry against the ungodly who abuse the godly. And this is a normal situation on planet earth, right? First of all, that those in power abuse those without power, but those ungodly in power love to abuse the godly who don't have power. And so that's just kind of a common thing. We see this throughout. They don't call on the Lord. They abuse. Verse 5, David says, There they are in great fear, for God is with the generation of the righteous. Now, this is interesting. Though the unrighteous authorities are enslaving the godly, David is saying it's actually the, the, these ungodly people who are in great fear. That deep down, the ungodly person knows that there's a God who's going who's gonna to hold them accountable. And you see, that's the reason why. The reason why nations and communities seek to stamp out godly witness, seek to st stamp out God and Bible and all of the things is because it's a reminder to them that judgment is coming. It's interesting, if you look at the history of those people who have promoted the evolutionary theory, it really started with them, them wanting to get rid of the flood. I always find that so interesting as you study that history, that they wanted to explain away the flood. Why? Because the flood is a picture of God judging fallen mankind, fall, uh, judging unrepentant mankind. And so what we have here is David says they're afraid. They're afraid because they know that God will judge them. Now, again, instead of being afraid, what should they do? Or what should they do with that fear? Well, turn to the Lord. Turn to the Lord for salvation and they can have escape. And so we should remind ourselves of this truth here, you know, that, that the ungodly have that fear 
And then even as we seek to share with the ungodly, to remind them of that. Verse six, he says, you shame the counsel of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Okay, so the ungodly person shames the counsel of the poor, treats them uh, in an unrighteous way. But what we need to do, we need to remind ourselves that God is our refuge, okay? That God is our hiding place, that whenever we die, we are going to be transported to that ultimate high place, to that place with the Lord. And so there's, there's great encouragement here for us. And then now verse seven, notice, oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord brings back the captivity of his people, let Jacob rejoice and Israel be glad. Now, so this captivity here, it's speaking of like general captivity, difficulty, hardship. So what David is summing up here in verse 7 is David is saying, I'm looking forward to future deliverance. I'm looking forward to that moment when we will all be delivered. And please understand and remind yourself that deliverance is on the way. Now, I want to close a little bit differently today by having you turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Because I want to seek to answer that question, how long, right? For each one of us, all those difficulties that we're going through, all those circumstances that we don't enjoy, well, how long until we're delivered? How long until we're set free? And so I believe the answer is found here in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And I looked for a, a good place to try to divide this up. I couldn't find it. So I'm going to read quickly through this final chapter and we'll find this answer to how long. Now, Paul writes, starting in the beginning of 2 Corinthians 4, he says, therefore, since we have this ministry, in other words, the ministry of the gospel, uh, as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. But we've renounced the hidden things of shame, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but the manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. But even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age is blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of the darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of, Christ, of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Okay, real quick, Paul's writing 2 Corinthians, and one of the things he's addressing in 2 Corinthians is the fact that the Corinthian church is re rejecting his right as an apostle. They're, they're talking bad about him. They're not really kind of receiving him as an apostle. So in this book, he's trying to show them that, no, I am apostle and it's good for you to listen to me because I only want your best. And he's talking to him about how he's been sharing the gospel with people and some people listen and some people don't. But then he continues on and he says, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. And here it is. Notice Paul, Someone who I would say served God incredibly faithfully had difficult circumstances. Notice he says, we are hard pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always caring about in the body, the, the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our body. For we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake that the life of Jesus may also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So then death is working in us, but life in you. And since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what is written, 
I believed and therefore I spoke. We also believe and therefore speak, knowing that he who raised up the Lord Jesus will also raise us up with Jesus and will present us with you. For all things are for your sakes, that grace having spread through the many may cause thanksgiving to abound to the glory of God. So Paul is saying, as we're doing this ministry, as we're serving this life, guess what? Difficult things are happening. It's hard. It's, 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 we're being delivered to death constantly, but guess what? God's with us. Jesus is working through our lives. The gospel is being spread. And then here we come to it. These last few verses, verses 16 through 18, they answer the question, how long? Notice, therefore, we do not lose heart. Even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day for our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. So the answer is there in verse 17. How long? But for a moment. That, that's what Paul says under the inspiration of the scriptures. No matter how long, how hard it feels, Paul says this. Paul says to us through the scriptures, look in my eyes. He says, whatever you're going through, it's but for a moment. When you ask yourself how long, it's but for a moment. Because you and I, when we're standing face to face with the Lord Jesus Christ, when we're there and these temporary seen things have passed away, the unseen things have become real before our eyes, the eternal is there, we're going to say that was just but for a moment. It felt long then, but it was but for a moment. 